Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Radio Free Mormon, how are you? I am exhausted. Exhausted? You've had a crazy week. Tell us about it. Oh my gosh, my only hope is that I don't look as bad as I feel. Okay. <laughs> and well, no, no what, matter how bad I look, it's not what, as bad as I feel. No, I am exhausted and exhilarated at the same time. Oh my goodness. Well, I just got back from Utah this morning. And I would say the last couple of days, I flew down there Friday, flew back early, early this morning. And uh, right now I am on 36 hours with no sleep. And the 36 hours is based upon the two hours of sleep I got to start off this 36 hours. So yeah, I'm running on fumes, baby. But anyway, yesterday, no, let's say Monday, I was down in, um, well, Utah at John DeLynn's uh, Wonderful Mormon Stories studio. And we did over four hours in the afternoon. And then we had to rush because I was I was the one who caused it to go long. I accept full responsibility for that to go to the the premiere. You heard that, John. It's RFM's fault. I accept full responsibility for the actions of my crew and to the premiere of Under the Banner of Heaven. So that was incredible, wonderful. And um, uh, we got to do that. And then after that was over, well, let's see. Then we come into Monday and Monday, uh, Tuesday. I'm sorry. I have no idea what day of the week it is right now. Tuesday morning, the following morning, then back in John Dillon Studios with Randy Bell. And we did, we recorded about three hours in the morning. And then in the, I have no idea what happened after that, but there was something that happened that evening. Oh yes, last night, there was that presentation that the Mormon Stories, John Dillon and um, uh, the people there at Mormon Stories, including Jen, whose last name escapes me. I, pro I apologize, but I know it's two ends. You get a break. You're low on sleep, my friend. J-E-N-N. -N. She was fabulous in setting things up for this venue in American Fork, where I got to um, uh, talk about some things for about an hour and a half and then uh, see all the wonderful people who came out to see me. And I had a wonderful time. And I managed to get back to the, uh, the condo where I was staying, courtesy of Randy Bell. Thank you, Randy, so much. Um, in Park City, I got back there at about one o'clock in the morning and uh, I had to get up at four and I had to debrief Randy on what had gone on during the day. So that took another hour. So between two and four, I thought, yeah, I'm not getting any sleep. And I was right. Yeah, you, you, it sounds like it. So, all right, Lindsay Hanson Park, if you're listening, turn your mic off and your earphones and all that stuff off for just a moment. Um, RFM. From mm -hmm. a one to 10, how was Under the Banner of Heaven the episode or two? I think you guys saw two episodes. Yes, two. And I understand one that the, uh, the first oh, one, one drops on Hulu tomorrow night. Yeah. Andrew Garfield was there. I'm waiting uh, on bated breath, by the way, to watch it. Oh, yeah. It's great. It is yeah. really, is really good? so good. Yeah. It's a, uh, you know, a 10 would be perfect. And that would be like Nadia Comaneci style perfection. Godfather or, you know, Die Hard Part One or something. A few good Yeah. Men. You get the Nadia Comaneci thing, right? 
If you don't, that's fine. Okay, other people will who are older than you. I thought it was like a Kobayashi Maru or something. I don't know. <laughs> no, we're talking perfect tens <laughs> in the Olympics in the gymnastics, and she got gotcha. several of them. It was just incredible. Perfect. Um, but regardless, uh, I think it was back in 76. Uh, yeah, 72 was Olga Corbett. But uh, anyway, it was, it was very, very well done. And the acting is incredible. And by the way, I'm a huge Andrew Garfield fan. It is my opinion he's the best Spider-Man. And he does a wonderful, wonderful job. But the thing that really surprised me, because I thought this is going to be like the Andrew Garfield show in the sense of he's going to be the star. And he is a star, but there are fabulous actors in addition to him who are playing different roles, including uh, the role of Brenda uh, Lafferty. And I think I'm getting the names right. And Ron Lafferty. Oh, my gosh. And other people. And there's the Lafferty. And I forget his name, who's the chiropractor, who I think is Wyatt Russell, Kurt Russell's son, who plays that part. And he does a, he was U.S. agent back in the Falcon and Winter Soldier series last year. Mm-hmm. He is doing really, really incredible. And I think it's a, a mixture of the great acting and the great directing that's involved in this. Yeah. So uh, I don't know what the, I put some pictures on Facebook of from me in high school. And I've got this, you know, barely man mustache, you know. <laughs> And uh, I think that's what the, the comment there is referring to. So you said from a one to 10, you'd give it a nine? Oh, more than a nine. Oh, more than Absolutely. Nine. At least a 9.5, 9.6. So, so, the, so, the, so the Salt Lake Tribune was just shitting us when it said that it was not that not that great. They were like, was it? Well, they were basically saying it wasn't accurate, that it wasn't, um, that there were a lot of things it said that really weren't accurate about Mormonism or about fundamentalist Mormonism. But I actually am excited to watch it for that point of view. But you're just saying quality wise, you know, higher than a nine. And I had a wonderful experience mainly because I had not read the book. And oh, I really am not, yeah. and I'm not familiar with the criminal case except in the vaguest outlines. And so this is a completely new story for me. And so mm. I was v- quite riveted. I wasn't comparing it to what really happened. Yeah. I was just engrossed in the, the story. Did you see any inaccuracies in regards to how Mormonism is portrayed? No. Yeah. That's what the Tribune, somebody wrote into the Tribune and there was a big long article and I think they actually did two articles and I think in both of them there's a mention that that it wasn't very accurate and it portrays Mormons in a way that wasn't historically accurate. Um, I think there's some directorial uh, license that goes on and not necessarily with what happens but the the motivation behind it and I don't want to get into too much of that but you know there's a story that's being told and a director has the right to tell the story the way the director wants to tell the story. Sure. Um, there was a, there was a, a scene about a, a dog getting uh, killed or hung up in um, Kirtland, and, and not Joseph Smith's early folk magic. Not not that kind of dog. No, 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 no magic uh, circles. Okay. I, I won't mention it, but it's very, very good. And by the way, one of the things that I really appreciated about the movie was that it was actually very balanced. They have the Lafferty's, of course, who are they're odd and their their oddness is portrayed wonderfully and you know afterward i'm thinking their oddness is caused by the fact that these are the people who really take mormonism seriously yeah and the patriarchy and the big family they they have oddness above and beyond just mormonism seriously so i want to say that but on the other hand they have a number of faithful mormons who are very favorably portrayed including brenda lafferty she's one and her family her dad who's a bishop who is very positively portrayed mm. as a bishop who's a good guy. And uh, he's a member of the church, obviously, he's a bishop. And also they have created a fictional character who drives the 
um, the narrative, and that is uh, An Andrew Garfield's character. He's a detective who doesn't actually exist, but he is, um, you know, Andrew Garfield. I'm sorry, we're, we have things to talk about. Other you're, than this, you're but good. He, I love him so much because he has this um, uh, goodness that I believe exists in him that he is able to bring forward in his characters. And he does that frequently. And it's hard for me to believe that he's able to do that without actually having something so good inside of him that he draws from. But he is a wonderfully uh, portrayed character of a faithful LDS person who also happens to be a detective in the local police department who goes in to investigate this, this horrendous murder that starts off the action. And then we find out what's been going on that leads up to the murder. Ooh, Hello, yeah. Maven. How are you doing? I'm good. I had a question for you uh, based on something that uh, someone else has written, because I have heard that they are uh, have portrayed, you know, the, the non Lafferty's as pretty normal um, members of the church and in a good and favorable light. Um, but there was someone who was and I don't remember, so I apologize. They might even be watching, but it was somebody in my Facebook feed that said that while it was positive, it was still like really weird and foreign. And so they said they felt that most people who don't have any connection to Mormons or Mormonism would find it off putting possibly cultish. And I wondered like if you uh, agreed with that or if you, you saw that or or if you thought that they are portrayed as like pretty normal, although faithful people. Well, the, the Lafferty's are definitely going to come across as cultish. And Not the Lafferty's. They, are. they were talking about the other, like, more normal representations of members, that it was still, like, odd. Well, I don't know, because that bishop, uh, Brenda's, I, I, I'm sorry, I forget her last name, and I apologize. And I don't know all the names, because I'm not familiar with the story, and there's a lot of characters, right? But uh, um, she's wonderfully portrayed, is very, actually... A kind of uh, forward, uh, a positive role model for women. Uh, she wants to get things done. She is um, uh, assertive, which ends up being what gets her in trouble when she gets married to the youngest Lafferty. And they, she starts acting more like the men in the family and not like the women in the family. And I've only seen the first two episodes, right? But right. it's obvious that this is what is going is causing the friction. The women in the family uh, really like her. And the men start liking her, maybe a little too much. But uh, then it's like, uh, who is this woman who is acting so, uh, I, I, I almost say aggressively, but that's not the right word, uh, doing things and being um, affirmative and- Assertive? Uh, thank you, assertive. I knew it was a word that started with A. Yeah, assertive, thank you. Um, and that's obviously going to be what it is that ends up getting her crosswise with them and ends up uh, resulting in them- murdering her and her baby mm. okay thank you I, I just wanted to know yeah and I'm dad in, in it so i guess nobody none of us are truly an outsider anymore so but her family is portrayed so nicely and i was talking with gerardo uh gerardo and i sat uh together really uh, in the front row the the closest to the front that was available in the center and we were talking about this afterward and it was a disturbing idea that i had which is that between the, the, the contrast between Brenda's family and the Lafferty's, that Brenda's family is very, very uh, nice and good and positive as a representation of Mormonism, and the Lafferty's are not. But the thought really came to me strongly, and I didn't like it, which is that it's the Lafferty's who are taking Mormonism seriously, and mm -hmm. Brenda's family who really are not. They're, they're much more modern. And they're not stuck in the past with all the stereotypes so much as the Lafferty's are. 
Okay, mm. thank you. I'll hop back off. <laughs> I uh, it's hard to believe if they portray all these things accurately that Mormonism could come off looking cultish, huh? Well, yeah, but you see, they, 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 there's the contrast. The Lafferty's, they're cultish, and they are, but they have the, the contrast. So it's not just Mormons bad. Uh, they right. show, I so think, basically every kind of Mormon or, or pretty much every kind of Mormon that you could conceive of along the spectrum. Yeah, totally. <clears throat> sorry about that. Um, all right. Are we, we wanting to dive in? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. That was no, like no, the no, longest no, introduction sorry. ever. I wanted to know. I asked the question. Okay. Um, I just, I got I didn't have a good segue, so I just had to do it. <laughs> I was going to use the line from uh, 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 Big Trouble in Little China about, you know, experiencing unreasonable things, but uh, I couldn't figure out a way to work it in. So yeah, that's why Russell's dad, who was in that. Gotcha. There you go. All right, let's, uh, let's do this. So what I wanted to do, the whole idea tonight, we, we've talked about Mormon leaders lying pretty much half our episodes, right? Like we pointed out how dishonest they are. And tonight I didn't want to do that. So when we named the topic lying for the Lord, my objective tonight was not to show their lies, which I think will probably show a thousand more before you and I retire from this. But uh, what I wanted to do is show the provenance for lying within Mormon culture, within Mormon leadership. And so what we wanted to do was pull up quotes um, where the leaders seem to be giving some cover to being dishonest and in some cases to flat out lying. And then you begin to understand why the leaders, having framed lying as not so bad and really necessary in building the kingdom of God, you realize why leaders do lie and seem to feel pretty comfortable doing it. It's because uh, a handful of leaders, at least on the record and probably more off of them, I would be very curious when you are brought into the Quorum of the Twelve, what kinds of training and teaching you're given about how you handle tough topics and questions. And so I'm sure some of that goes on too, but tonight we only have what, what they care to share with us. And so we're going to share some of the public stuff. So I thought I would lead off with our dear prophet, seer and revelator, although I don't think he was prophet at the time. Um, Maven, if you've got these, we can throw these up on the screen and, uh, if you've got the first one from Russell M. Nelson, um, if you've got that. Yeah, sorry. I'm just getting it pulled up here. One moment. I'm excited to watch the show. I, I couldn't make it to the thing um, in Salt Lake, but. Uh, I know you live a long way away. I am. Four hours is a bit. And, uh, you had to work. And it was on a Monday, right? So yes. that just became a little difficult. But uh yeah, I had to work Monday. Otherwise, if I was completely uh, away from the pawn shop, then I probably would have done that. So Apostle Russell M. Nelson, this is what he says, and uh, I'll start there with the indeed. Indeed, in some instances, the merciful companion to truth is silence. The companion to truth The is merciful silence. companion to truth. Yeah. Some truths are best left unsaid. Whoops, something's going on there. Best left unsaid. And then, it, and then there's a little gap there. And then it says, any who are tempted to rake through the annals of history. And I don't know if we can scroll down, Maven, or do a control uh, F for that uh, about the annals of history. Um, there it is. It's important yeah. to spell annals with two N's, by the way. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I totally. Any who are tempted to rake through the annals of history to use truth unrighteously or to dig up facts with the intent to defame or destroy 
should hearken to this warning of Scripture. By the way, does the LDS Church ever use information to hurt people and to diminish people? You see, Thomas this, Marshall, for this is a, please. You see, look at you. This is this is going to be my one uh, thing that I was going to be able to add to oh, the show, please, and sorry. you've already grabbed it. No, I was talking with Scott Dyer prior to the show uh, for some period of time. I'm sorry. Rami Umptum Ruminations. Yes, which is a great podcast under your umbrella. Yeah. And uh, that occurred to me because this becomes, first off, this becomes one of the main reasons that leaders of the church give for not telling the truth or not telling the whole truth and keeping those negative things about church history under wraps is that we should not speak ill of the dead. Sometimes they'll put the dead in there, right? You shouldn't speak ill of the living, but certainly not speak ill of the dead. But as I was talking with Scott about it, it did occur to me what you just said. This is not a principle without exception as far as the LDS church goes. Typically, principles are things that don't have exceptions. That, that's what makes them a principle, right? But what they're really saying is the leaders of the church or the people in church history that we like, we don't want you to speak any ill of them. But the people in church history who are members of the church and even leaders in the church who we don't like, like Thomas B. Marsh or Simon's Rider, it's open season on them. Oliver Cowdery, Emma Smith, um, you know anybody who leaves the church. Again, the church doesn't have one positive story about somebody who lost their testimony and left the church. Yeah, And this so is a wonderful one because uh, most people are familiar with Boyd K. Packer, which we'll get to, I know. And then some people are familiar with uh, Elder Oaks, who echoes. Boyd K. Packer, but not as many people are as familiar with the fact that Russell Nelson also jumped on the Not All Trues Are Useful bandwagon. When was this talk given? 1986, I believe in January, the January Enzyme. All of these are happening in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of these in the 80s. And so that you, you at least begin to maybe see there's a shift in rhetoric. But again, the church never disavows these things. So these things sit on the record and they came from the mouth of prophets, seers, and revelators. I also find it, we'll, we'll see this as we go through this. It really is up to the eye of the beholder to determine whether it's negative or positive. And the church has a way of going like, these are the instances where lying is okay because being silent or lying is upholding the kingdom or to tell the truth would diminish the kingdom. And they're the ones who get to set the rules, right? And the reality is that um, when we share the facts to help people have information that leads them to think that the church was dishonest with them, to claim their own uh, individuality back, to leave the church, and then to thank us uh, for helping them to have their lives back, the church gets to put the, um, the, title, the label of that of being negative, when in reality, the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who left the church this year, by the way, the, I think we were talking about um, the church numbers a few weeks ago in a Mormon discussion episode. And the one thing we don't know is how many people are excommunicated or resign, but there are people out there who are doing the data. And the best guesses are around 50 or 60,000 people a year are resigning from Mormonism and they don't know the numbers of excommunications, but and I don't know how they get that data, but these are statisticians who work really hard to grab every little nugget and try to figure it out. Um, those those thousands and thousands of people look at this process of us unveiling what Mormonism does and what it says and what it really stands for as being positive. But again, it's the church that gets to come along and go, nope, it's a negative thing when you tell the facts of the church and hurt people's testimonies. 
the idea of whether it's positive or negative really depends on which church you're in, right? Because if I leave Scientology and learn the truth about Scientology and come into Mormonism, they would see that as a good thing. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So they're the ones who get to, to make the rules about what's negative and what positive. I would simply say when you dig up facts with the intent of defaming or destroying, I've got no, uh, my main impetus is not to defame or destroy. My main impetus is to help people have enough information that they can make informed decisions and have their life back. And if they stay in the church being fully informed, a guy like Dan Hardy, for instance, I'm great with that. I could care less. But when people have enough information, a majority of those people who know the ins and outs of the church, once they learn it, they leave and they report back that it's a positive experience. Um, and so it's not really fair for the church to come in and label it negative. So I'll stop there with that one. Well, my spidey sense always goes off whenever anybody is saying that there are truths out there that should not be talked about. Now, there's such a thing as national security. We get that. But generally speaking, we want to know what the truth is so that we can make an informed decision about what really happened. The people who used to be and try to still be in control of all the information want to keep certain truths off the table so that the truths that they allow you to hear, or at least their version of the truth that they allow you to hear, is most likely to lead you into the church and to keep you from leaving the church once in. Yeah. Uh, Maven, if you can do a control F and type in too often, T-O-O, oh, down in the text there. Yeah. yeah. Look at that. Too often, however, negative information, again, who determines whether it's positive or negative? However, negative information is presented to further negative ends. Again, the church's point of view. The reality is it's not necessarily negative. If people feel like they get their lives back, they learn the truth and they decide that Mormonism is no longer true and the chances are significantly in favor of that, right? Um, to call it negative, again, is just, it's unfair. And But you would expect it. It's insider language, and we totally get why they do it. Um, but just a little note, I put this on Facebook today. I, I sent you and John Delin a picture, but and you I don't know if you got one, but if you didn't, I'm assuming you probably have one on the way um, if somebody did reach it. Do you have it? I'm not sure. I have a package here on the desk that I haven't been able to Ooh. open with the rest of my mail. Oh, I just got this today, so I'm sure. So this okay. is Captive in the Bubble. It's a book by Selma Lewis. And yeah. when I go here to her dedication, Captive in the Bubble is dedicated to Radio Free Mormon, Bill Real, John DeLynn, and all who helped me through faith crisis and transition as they helped me. Like, that's mm. a positive statement. So, yeah. So... Again, just to note that when it serves their purpose, it's easy to say that holding back the truth is the good thing, not sharing the facts is the good thing, and because these people who do are working for a negative purpose. Um, and anyway, just to note that. But and yeah, if I can just draw a quick analogy, if you're please. selling a motor vehicle and you hold back negative information about the vehicle from the prospective purchaser of the vehicle, there are laws against that. Yeah. Yeah. You can bet your ass. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Consumer Protection Act, triple damages, baby. So that's the first one. Apostle Russell M. Nelson, 1986. Let's go to the uh, Boyd K. Packer. Uh, Sorry, I'm all this. Here, I'll stop this here. Oh, no, no. I'm no, opening this I, package. By all means, open it up. I'm sure that's what it is. All right. So the second one is Apostle Boyd K. Packer. And, um, Let's find the spot where it says there is a temptation for the writer. 
Ta-da. Second caution. There is a temptation for the writer or the teacher of church history to want to tell everything, whether it's worthy or faith-promoting or not. Um, and then that famous line, right? Some things that are true are not very useful. And I'll tell you this. Like you say, RFM, if it comes to a matter of national security, there are reasons for which you hold back all the facts. But generally speaking, in all of our life, we value having all the information available and accessible and having an awareness that the information exists. And our ability to get as much context, to have as much of a well-rounded picture as possible about an issue is seen by us as having value. We want to not find out later on that essential information that would have deeply changed our conclusion uh, wasn't given to us because that feels like we were cheated. And just notice here that uh, President Packer and other quotes that we go into are very clear that anytime the information, no matter how true it is, anytime that information is not faith-promoting, they would prefer it not be shared. By the way, yes, I did get my copy of this book. Thank you so much to the person who sent it to me. And that was, um, uh, yes, the person that you mentioned. I'm Selma so sorry. Lewis. By the way, um, Selma. Okay. And that's the nom de plume, I believe, of this author. Uh, you also do a very good job of wrapping the book. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much. That was uh, about 10 minutes in front of the Washington Recreation Center to get that. Thing <laughs> I think I just got my workout in today, yeah. opening this package. Thank you so much. It says here, uh, in captive in the bubble, two members of this is the book, by the way, two members of a high demand fundamentalist religion are on opposite paths. A young woman joins the church and molds her life to its teachings, and a senior church official experiences a faith crisis when he discovers he's been manipulated by the church his entire life. Thousands of people follow these paths every year, joining or leaving churches in real life. Captive in the bubble is a peek into this world of faith, faith crises, and life inside a cult. So there's a great book. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but uh, because it's dedicated to you and me, it can't be anything but wonderful. Well, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's uh, very good. It sounds like a great synopsis that you read from the back of the book. There, yeah. I'm looking forward to reading this. Thank oh, you again. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to Selma. Um, so you've got President Packer saying that, again, if it's not faith-promoting, we ought to not tell it. And that's deceiving. If I join a church, which I, you know, you and I both joined this church as converts, it would have been nice had the church thought enough of us to give us all the information, good and bad, and trust us to sort through it and to figure it out and derive at the conclusion. And even once you have the Holy Ghost, which is supposed, its main thing is to testify of truth. Mormon leaders don't seem to really value the Holy Ghost ability because even when members have the Holy Ghost, they're deeply afraid of giving members all the information because even with the Holy Ghost, somehow these folks aren't going to figure it out. The Holy Ghost needs a little help every now and then from the church leadership. Yeah. You know, and this is something so fun because when we're talking about church, the church leaders hiding things from the members, it's not just that we have to sort through and dig up the clues and put them together in some kind of a puzzle and show, okay, well, we put this together and we, we look at the DNA and the fingerprints and whatever, and we can show that they're hiding things. We can do that too in a number of instances, but this is even bigger than that. This is phenomenal. It's not that we have to figure it out. They're actually telling us 
that they're hiding things from us. And the stuff they're hiding from this from us is true, which they admit, yeah. but it's stuff that's negative. And so it's not useful. We are the ones who judge what is useful and what is not useful. And of course, what Boy K. Packer defines useful as is useful to keep you in the church. Yeah. Keep you paying tithing. Yes. Useful keep you in the church. So that's the definition of useful here. What is faith promoting is useful. What is not faith promoting is not useful. And therefore, it needs to be kept hidden from the members. Yeah. And uh, again, if you step out of your Mormon lens, if you're a believer right now watching, if you step out of your Mormon lens and you look at it from kind of 20,000 foot, looking at all the faiths across the world, you sure as heck wouldn't stand behind Scientology's leaders hiding information. You wouldn't stand behind Jehovah's Witnesses leaders hiding information. You wouldn't want uh, the Seventh-day Adventist or Heaven's Gate uh, or the Moonies hiding information. Um, it's only your church that you give approval to. And notice that and ask yourself, what does that mean? Why, why does your church get a free pass on being honest, but all the other churches damn them for not doing so? By the way, you're using honesty in the connection with hiding things. Yeah. And I, you and think I, we'll that's get, dishonest? I, I, okay. I, the church does. And we'll get to that here shortly. <laughs> so um, that's number two. Uh, the next one is Boyd Kirkland. And uh, if you'll pull that one up, Maven. This is in dialogue, and uh, Boyd here talks about an experience he had. I'll, I'll read this. And I'll tell you what, RFM, I'm trying to think it would be the easiest way to do this. Um, just because there's so many ellipses, I think I'll have to do this. So here it is. I wrote a letter to President Spencer W. Kimball in the summer of 1980, asking why he, as well as Marky e. Peterson, Bruce R. McConkie, and other general authorities had been so vocally denouncing the Adam-God doctrine, while at the same time denying that Brigham Young had been the source of the idea when there was an abundance of good evidence to the contrary. By the way, this stumped me when I was a member. I my For years, I held the belief that people had taken a few quotes from Brigham Young out of context. Bruce R. McConkie told me to think that way. Spencer W. Kimball told me to think that way. And uh, I was really caught off guard when I learned later on that there was an abundance of quotes and that leader, those same leaders in other places had admitted that they knew that Brigham had taught it and they were just trying to put some distance between them and it. Um, so there's that. Uh, let's see here. Bruce R. McConkie and other general authorities have been so vocally denouncing the out-of-God doctrine while at the same time denying Brigham Young had been the source of the idea when there was an abundance of good evidence to the contrary. For example, President Kimball said in the 1976 General Conference, we warn you against the dissemination of doctrine which are not according to the scriptures and which are alleged to have been taught by some general authorities of past generations. Kimball intentionally uses the word alleged to create distance, ambiguity, and doubt about whether Brigham Young had taught it, while at the same time, and then we'll get into the rest of this quote, while at the same time knowing damn well that Brigham Young had taught the Adam-God doctrine over and over and over again, which is, is a subject fond of you. You're soft or fond of your heart, right? And of course he knew it. What's Spencer yeah. Kimball's middle name? Yeah. Wooly. Spencer Wooly Kimball. Huh. Yeah, I know exactly that Brigham Young taught it. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Such, for instance, is the Adam-God theory. I pointed out that this approach created a double dilemma for church members aware of the facts. First, 
how a prophet Brigham could claim his revelation and promote to the church an idea deemed by later readers to be a dangerous heresy. And second, why later church leaders would dishonestly deny the true source of the heresy, claiming it originated with enemies of the church. I indicated in a letter to the first presidency that I felt this dilemma was simply the result of a misunderstanding or a lack of information on the part of the brethren. Didn't you for years, <laughs> didn't you for years think that the brethren were just not aware? They just were naive. They were ignorant to the messiness of all these issues. Oh, right. When you, when you catch them in something like this, which does happen more than just here, but when you catch them, there's only two possibilities. Either they are intentionally deceiving or unintentionally deceiving because they just don't know. And th the first reaction that I usually have is to want to be charitable and say, okay, well, they, they just aren't aware. But that creates its own problems because these are the leaders of the church, right? And if they're not aware of the church's own history, and this would be history that uh, Spencer Kimball actually lived through given his age, uh, then we've got a problem there. We've got a problem either way. And I think that what you're going to show is that it's not something that they just said accidentally. And in fact, this whole paragraph from Spencer Kimball is very carefully constructed and designed to give the impression that they want to give. And this shows to me that all the work that went into it, that's not something that someone who just doesn't know about it does. Yeah. And, uh, uh, we're going to bring in our good friend F. Michael Watson here in a moment. It's uh, continuing here. Uh, Boyd says, later I met with an informal committee answering to Marky e. Peterson, which had been set up to help members confronted with issues raised by fundamentalist Mormons. The Adam God doctrine being one of the chief of these. It's one of the main pillars of fundamentalist Mormonism is that our LDS Mormonism got off track and that uh, they had the original doctrines that were preached to be truth and that the LDS version essentially distanced themselves from those truths, having entered some sort of apostasy. And uh, it says here, uh, the net result of my meeting with these people began to make me realize that Brother Peterson wasn't acting out of ignorance of the facts regarding the Adam-God problem, and neither was Brother McConkie. I still wondered about the extent President Kimball's knowledge of the subject. However, I suspected that my letter never reached him. In February 1981, I met with Michael F. Michael Watson, the secretary to the First Presidency. He was surprisingly candid with me, revealing that my letter had been forwarded to Mark E. Peterson. Brother Watson showed me a memo written by Brother Peterson to the First Presidency with his recommendations as to how to respond to me. He informed them that the issues I had raised were real, that Brigham Young had indeed taught these things, but that he... Sorry, but that they could not acknowledge this lest I would trap them into saying this, therefore meant Brigham was a false prophet. He, meaning uh, Marky e. Peterson, he therefore recommended that I be given a very circuitous response, evading the issue, which he volunteered to write. I asked Brother Watson, as well as the members of the committee I had previously met with, how this approach would help people like myself who knew better. Wasn't there concern that some might be dismayed and disillusioned by their church leader's lack of candor? Their response was very similar to President Hinckley's statement mentioned earlier about losing a few through excommunication. They said in essence, quote, if a few people lose their testimonies over this, so be it. 
it is better than letting the true facts be known in dealing with the probable wider negative consequences to the mission of the church. And that's Dialogue, Volume 31, Number 3, Fall of 1998. We get it secondhand, kind of, but but not really. Like, he is firsthand, but it's not his words. It, it does seem like that's a pretty strong piece of evidence that these guys will lie whenever it is convenient for them. Or at least whenever they feel it is necessary. Yeah. Um, yeah, convenient, I'm not sure about, but necessary in order to maximize the number of people who stay in the boat and minimize the number of people who leave. By the way, had you cross-referenced this article? And this is a wonderful, Is this? I think it's a letter from Dialogue. I had not been aware of this letter, so huge kudos to you yeah, for letter, finding letter this. Dialogue. Kind of like a letter to the editor at the very beginning of this issue of Dialogue. And this issue's out there. I'll, links will be in the episode notes. One of the things that I always pride myself in doing, and you do too, is that whenever we tell things, we love putting the documents up on the screen. We love to put the resources, the, the URL links in our in our episode notes. We want you to doubt what we're saying and to go chase the information down. Um, often, there are apologists who try to only sprinkle in certain kinds of information and not really give you the full story. And I really want you, as the viewer, to go chase down these links and go read up on it. Um, I, I think while the leaders say they're as transparent or as honest and, and transparent as they know how to be, I think we're the ones who are really doing that. Um, all right. So next one is former BYU professor, David Knowlton. Bill, I was going to ask you, Please. did you cross-reference this with the story that Brent Metcalf told when he was working church security mm. and driving as a limousine? It might not have been a limit, but a chauffeur for yeah. Marky Peterson one evening. Gotcha. No, I didn't. He told this story 10, 12 years ago on Mormon stories when he was interviewed by John DeLynn. And this was his personal experience. But he's, of course, studying a number of things at the time. This is back around this time period. And Marky Peterson is one of the primary movers in talking about the Adam God theory is not correct. It's not true. It was not taught by Brigham Young, all of these kinds of things. And he has Marky Peterson in the car with him. Nothing else is going on. And as I recall, Brent Metcalf is asking about the Adam God theory, a, a finer point about the Adam God theory, not anything major. And he he brings up the Adam God theory. And as soon as those words come out of his mouth, Marky Peterson begins to shake his head and say that the church must not know that Brigham Young taught the Adam God theory, because if they find that out, that will be a huge win for the fundamentalists, the fundamentalist Mormons, and will serve as a likely catalyst for members of the LDS church then to become converted over to the fundamentalist version of Mormonism. Even the naming it the Adam God theory is an obfuscation. It was a doctrine of the church taught at the veil, at the St. George Temple at, at a minimum. And, and designed to be so by Brigham Young. Um, I forget who the scribe was who was who was taking the notes of that, but he Nuttall? essentially yeah, yeah, um, yeah, brother Nuttall. And he wrote out the in, the entire thing that was supposed to be presented at the veil and was at the St. George Temple. And even to this day, you'll get apologists going like, nah, maybe it was, maybe it was, and we don't really know. And um, they're always playing fast and furious with with the facts. The, the reality is that this wasn't a theory. 
This was doctrine taught by Brigham Young and the immediate leaders after him um, and testified to by members of the church. Um, so it was kind of like John Kerry where he was for it before he was against it. And yeah, the Adam God, what's that? Yeah. And the Adam God doctrine, the church was for it before they were against it. Yes. And just underscoring doctrine and not a theory because a theory is a softening of it in terms of progressing away from it being doctrine. Where Brigham Young said, I received it by revelation from God. And not only did I receive it by revelation, but it's binding on us. And you have to believe it if you want to be saved. If you don't believe what I'm telling you about Adam God, then you will be damned. Yeah. So that's what the doctrine is. It's a critical doctrine that's necessary to be believed for salvation and exaltation, according to Brigham Young. And then as time progresses and the church begins to move away from it, one of the first steps is to call it a theory instead of a doctrine. Yeah. So whereas it was a doctrine in the beginning, which means today it's a false doctrine, if it's false doctrine, right? So, and they would have to acknowledge that Brigham Young taught it and that it's no longer a doctrine. It's a false doctrine because it's not true. Yeah, you're absolutely right. By the way, this whole thing about Adam God and Brigham Young is really a classic instance of gaslighting by the church yeah. where they're saying what happened is different than what really happened. And uh, what they're really hoping is that you won't go digging into the sources yourself and find out that not only did it really happen, but when you find out that it really happened, then you start realizing that the church leaders today, or at least in the 80s when they were talking about this, were gaslighting, dissembling, and deceiving the members of the church as to the reality of this, of this doctrine. We have at least two, and I think three leaders, if you buy into this letter by Boyd Kirkland, um, we have at least two for sure, and three if you buy this, this uh, dialogue article letter, um, where leaders said on the record one thing and then privately off the record admitted something completely 180 different. Mm -hmm. And that is dishonesty 101 right there. All right. Uh, former BYU professor David Knowlton. So we'll go to the next one. Thank you, Maven. David Knowlton uh, in Salt Lake City said, can you read that one, RFM? Can you see that? I, thank you. Yeah, I know David Knowlton. We were, we were members together at UT in the student ward. Uh, and he was very influential in my my uh, my progress and my growth in the church. Love it. Yes, David Knowlton, in a television interview that aired August 16th, 1992 in Salt Lake, said, I'm ashamed, frankly, of a church that doesn't want to tell the truth. I'm ashamed of institutional lying. By the way, I believe this came, he, he was saying this in response to the uh, the revelation that the church actually did have a committee that was organized in order to monitor, lesser minds would call it spying, on members of the church who they felt were saying things that they shouldn't be saying that were controversial, that were not faith-promoting, that they're actually saying those uh, unuseful truths that the church is trying to keep hid, and these other people are talking about them. So they create a committee to monitor those people. That was the, uh, the Strengthening Church Members Committee, which uh, all of a sudden hit the fan inadvertently uh, right around 1990 or 1991. So here we got 1992. I'm ashamed, frankly, of a church that doesn't want to tell the truth. I'm ashamed of institutional lying. And then it says uh, his, David's comments stemmed from the church's denial, then admission that a committee existed within the church that keeps files on the activities on its members, a committee that exists to this day, by the way. 
Yeah. One of the funniest things is to go to that, uh, I think it's a BBC interview where the guy inside church headquarters, he's just, uh, he's just a guy and he's, the uh, head he's of the high public up relations department, right? Yeah. He's high up in the public relations department. He's asked about the strengthening church members committee. He kind of plays dumb and doesn't really know how to help them. And once, once the interviewer is adamant that the committee exists, he goes and fetches elder Holland or somebody else to, to address it and talk about it. Cause he doesn't, he doesn't want to do it. Oh, and what, and what happens actually, as I recall, is that this, uh, the, the interviewer, uh, and I'm forgetting his name right now, but he, but he's talked with people outside of this. He's done his homework and he's found out yeah. from them that they say there is this committee. So he asks the head of the PR saying, does this committee exist? I've heard that this committee exists. And he goes, no, I've never heard of that. And then he follows up again. He says, well, people have told me that there is a committee called the Strengthening Church Members Committee. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he changes. The PR guy changes on a dime and says, oh, well, yeah, it does. But I don't know anything about it. And then the interviewer does a great job like a lawyer and says, OK, I just want to make sure this that I'm understanding this. I asked you about the existence of it. You said you didn't know if it existed. And then I asked you a second time. And now you do know that it exists. But you're saying you just don't know anything about it. But you've got you'll refer me over to someone who does know about this committee. Yeah, that was a lie. Yeah. I, and the only way to understand that is that he was instructed not to tell the truth. Yeah. This committee was a secret committee that was not to be known outside of, well, I guess the committee or whatever limited group of people get to know about it. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it struck me as quite interesting. All right. We'll move on to the next one. Stephen Snow, assistant church historian at the time. This is in an interview uh, with Blair Hodges for the Maxwell Institute. And he is asked a question on the church's increasing openness with regard to history. Uh, he says, my view is that being open about our history solves a whole lot more problems than it creates. We might not have all the answers, but if we are open and we now have pretty remarkable transparency, which means what, RFM? That prior to now, the transparency was not very remarkable. No. Then, then I think <laughs> in the long run... That will serve us well. I think in the past, there was a tendency to keep a lot of records closed or at least not give access to information. Again, withholding information, historical items, and truths from you. But the world has changed in the last generation. Notice they are forced by the world to change. It's not that they genuinely came to the moment and go, you know what? We just need to be more honest. We're just not doing a good job. The reality is the world Im imposed on them that they change. With access to information on the internet, we can't continue that pattern. And then here's the money line. I think we need to continue to be more open. So even in this moment, he's acknowledging that they're still not as open as they need to be. Right. That to me is a good one. Uh, so Stephen Snow. Next one is uh, Dallin Oaks on a PBS uh, documentary. And is this the one about the Mormons? Yes, I believe so. And so uh, uh, back to the one we were just on there, Maven. I think Helen Whitney is the, the person who directed that. And yeah, yeah. It. Director, producer, yeah. Uh, so whoever, yeah, so Helen Whitney, yes, HW. Just one more question on that. In every church... And if you don't mind reading the answer, if you can do that, I'll read the question. In every church, in every person, there is a shallow territory, usually explained away through context. Many find information through the internet. Some would rather find things out about the church history 
doctrine through teachings rather than the internet or other resources. And Dallin H. Oaks says, It's an old problem. The extent to which official history, hist- excuse me, hist- histories? Mm-hmm. Hang on a second here. Well, he also says whatever they are, so he doesn't know what Is he's he saying. Is he saying either. historics or histories? Histories. Okay, it looks like, okay, Good, thank, thank you, you so man. much, Raven. Okay, get rid of those. It's an old problem. The extent to which official histories, whatever they are, or semi-official histories, get into things that are shadowy or less well-known or whatever. <laughs> I could just picture other I'm saying whatever. That's an old problem in Mormonism. A feeling of members that they shouldn't have been surprised by the fact that this or that happened. They should have been alerted to it. I have felt that throughout my life. What is he saying? It is almost sounds like he's blaming that, the members. Is he saying that uh, he's had experiences throughout his life where he's being surprised by finding out stuff that he felt he should have been alerted Will to? you go back up a little not? bit there, Maven? Because that's how I'm reading that. Is that what he's saying? Uh, let's see here. It's an old problem. The extent to which official histories, whatever they are, semi-official histories get into things that are shadowy or less well-known or whatever. That's an old problem in Mormonism, a feeling of members that they shouldn't have been surprised by the fact of this, that that happened, that they should have been alerted to it. I have felt, yeah, I think he's saying like all throughout our history, people, members of the church and leaders have been surprised to learn certain facts that haven't been shared with them openly. And he's felt that too. You know, he's one of the main people who are responsible (laughs) for hiding it. Most, it's more of his quotes in this whole outline than anybody else's. So I have trouble actually believing him when he says, yeah, this has been my experience too. Uh, he's like the guy in charge of the firing squad saying, yeah, I got shot throughout my life as well. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, he's holding the gun. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Anyway, there are several different elements of that. One element is that we're emerging from a period of history writing within the church of adoring history that doesn't deal with anything that's unfavorable. Who who chose to do that kind of history? He did. Well, the leaders of the church did. Including him. Yes, and he certainly carried the baton once it was passed to him. Okay, well, I mean, he's like uh, the fastest guy on the relay team as far as getting that baton and going with the hiding games. So, doesn't deal with anything. And we're coming into a period of warts and all kind of history by which I think he means we're being dragged kicking and screaming into a period of warts and all kind of history. Just a note, Elder Holland on the phone with me said the church is true, brother Bishop Real, uh, warts and all. So that's a phrase that is among the leadership, by the way. Go Continue. Perhaps our writing of history is lagging behind the times. No shit, Sherlock. But I believe that there is purpose in all these things. Because what, he determines what, God's the behind it. I mean, there's a purpose, and he knows what the purpose is because it's his purpose that he's doing by hiding it. Yeah, he could tell us the purpose, but he doesn't. But he carries it out, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. This is so. This is gaslighting too. Yeah. There, there may have, and I'm trying to only use gaslighting in a technically correct usage, but I Please. think this yeah. qualifies. There may have been a time when church members could not have been as well prepared for that kind of historical writing as they may be now. <laughs> and by the way, this was given back in like 1990 or something 
I don't remember when Helen Whitney did this thing, but it was it was not. I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly. And just remember that Stephen Snow, much later than that, said they're still not being as transparent as they need to be. Yeah, let me see here. Uh, that was PBS, right? Yeah. That's 2007. 2007. I 2007 is what it says. Or is it okay. 2000? And anyway, I think so. But uh, let's go on because he goes on. On the other hand, we're going to hide stuff from you that we don't want you to know. Oh, I'm sorry. Those aren't the words he uses, but that's what he's saying. He says, on the other hand, there are constraints on trying to reveal everything. What constraints? A constraint is something that keeps you from doing it in spite of, even if you wanted to, you can't. He's the one who's putting the constraint on himself. He's the one who's hiding it. There are no constraints other than those that he is imposing upon the release of all the information. On the other hand, there are constraints on trying to reveal everything. You don't want to be getting into and creating doubts that didn't exist in the first place. Okay, now now we have him revealing the rationale behind why it is they're hiding things. We don't want, you don't, by which he means I don't, you don't want to be getting into and creating doubts that didn't exist in the first place. And what is plenty of history for one person is inadequate for another. And we have a large church and it's shrinking every day. No, he didn't say that part. We have a large church, and that's a big problem. Okay, it's not the big problem that's a large church. What he's saying is there are people uh, who are able to take a lot of history or want a lot of history. There's other people in the church who don't want a lot of history. By the way, what he's going to do is set up this idea that, once again, the church caters to the lowest common denominator in the church. What is always taught at every level in the church is supposed to be directed to the newest member and you've had that uh you've heard that before yeah yeah milk before me and it's also very interesting because in a, a conservative type of church which generally the lds church is they if you took the same kind of principle and applied it to the public school system they would not agree with the idea that in the public school system what should be taught is only directed at the uh lowest common denominator thank you Thank yeah. you. I was trying to say that without sounding saying something that sounded really uh, mean about the people who are getting the lowest grades in the class, right? Yeah. Because if you do that, right, then what are you doing with everybody above them? You are keeping yeah. them down at that level. Yeah. And they would <laughs> say, no, don't do that in the public school system, but we're going to do it in the church. Yeah. And uh, let's see. And another, oh, and another problem, boy, he says a lot here. He's really digging himself a deep hole. And another problem is there are a lot of things that the church has written about that the members haven't read. Notice here, by the way, it's I, I'm going to make sure I say this right. He's noting that there's a lot of members of the church who don't read. And then he's also talking about that there are other members of the church who do read. But he also says, like, I don't want to put everything, we don't want to put everything out there because we don't want everybody to have uh, all the problems and all the mess and have doubts begin but he's also acknowledging the people who don't want to read won't read and the people who do do. So you really could put all the information out and the people who wanted to read the information would read it. And the people who are lazy that he admits are all throughout the church wouldn't read it. Right? Like, yeah. So there are lazy learners. There are people who don't read about their religion. He acknowledges that. So when you put out all the facts, 
it kind of takes care of itself. If you're honest and if your church is true and you put all the information out, the people that can handle it will continue to read it and the people that can't won't. But what, what is goes unsaid here is that if the church isn't true and it it's monumentally in favor of that conclusion, the church not being true, once you know all the data and know the things they're hiding, um, then people, if they have access to it, they're just, they're going to lose their testimonies. And that's what's happening every day now. Yes. And now he's going to uh, insinuate that the church has published a lot of stuff with the idea that even the negative stuff. And once again, he's going to now blame the members. Gospel topic essays have not been done yet. Right. Joseph Smith papers have not even been thought of yet. Right. And he's going to blame the members for not reading all of the stuff that the church has published as if they're reading all the stuff the church had published would actually give them both sides of the story when he knows perfectly well that it will not. And he's basically said that in the first part of this paragraph. He's talking out both sides of his mouth. How much unpacking do you have to do in everything this man says? Yeah. So he says, and another problem is there are a lot of things that the church has written about that the members haven't read. You stupid members. And the Sunday school teacher that gives Brother Jones his understanding of church history may be inadequately informed. So we're going to blame the Sunday school teacher now. And may not reveal something which the church has published. Or he might reveal something they have. And mainly the Sunday school teacher, if they're doing what Elder Oaks and the church leaders tell him to do, is going to stick to the manual that they produced, which is going to scrupulously avoid the negative information. Yeah. Man, this guy, he gets high marks in... Doublespeak? Uh a lot of things. Broken mirror, sleight of hand. Yeah, but he gets really good marks at it. Um, It's in the history, written for college or institute students. Sources written for quite mature students. But not every Sunday school teacher that introduces people to a history is familiar with that. By the way, the institute and college class course material also didn't talk about any of this stuff. No, and by the way, you can say institute class all you want in college course, but all it is is a bigger volume of the same old tripe. Yeah, it's just more primary. There's more of it, but it's yeah. the same kind of thing. The difference yeah. is in the quantity, not in the quality. No, I know you don't actually get all the deeper. Manuals. You just get more. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, uh, but not every... And so, we're almost to the end of this, thank goodness. And so, there is no way to avoid this criticism. Oh, my gosh. Well, of course there is, Elder Oaks. Just tell the truth. That's how you avoid the criticism. Yeah. Okay. Uh, To avoid this criticism. The best I can say is that we're moving with the times. Reminds me of Holland, right? Yes, which is what the restoration is all about. We're supposed to move with the times. Oops, did I say that? The best I can say is that we're moving with the times. We're getting more and more forthright. Oops. <laughs> Which means yesterday they were less and less forthright. Oh, my gosh. And forthright means honest. Yeah. We're getting more and more honest. We're, we're getting more and more forthright. This is the problem because he's answering this. He doesn't have a teleprompter in front of him. No. He's actually saying uh, much closer to the truth of what it is he believes that he normally would. He's slipping, he's tipping his hand over and over in this. We're getting more and more forthright, but we will never satisfy every complaint along that line and probably shouldn't. Probably shouldn't. We probably shouldn't be all forthright. There's things about me you wouldn't understand, Elder Oaks. 
things you couldn't understand, <laughs> things you shouldn't understand. Uh, another movie line. Which yeah, that, that but actually, that is what he's saying. And I, I, let me yeah, just yeah. change that for he a meant. second because it's, it's, it's Pee Wee. But Elder Oaks is saying there are things about the church that you couldn't understand, yeah. things you wouldn't understand, things you shouldn't understand. Yeah. That's really, I mean, uh, it's a funny line, but it's getting a little bit creepy here because it seemed pretty applicable to what he's saying. It reminds me a little bit of Jack Nicholson in uh, A Few Good Men when he's up on the stand and he's like, look, you, you guys trust me to decide what things get done right and what things get done wrong. And I get to make that decision and you shouldn't question me. Right. And you get to sleep in your bed at night because I'm there watching out and on protecting that you. Yeah. You need me on that wall. You want me on that wall. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hmm. And the apostles, they're the watchmen on the towers. Hmm. They use that reference from, I think, Ezekiel to describe themselves, don't they? Yeah, you got it, my friend. All right, so there's uh, that one. Uh, now we'll go to Elder Oaks, and we've got a little timestamp here. We'll play a little video uh, of him. Um, you have that Five. one? Five. Balance. Balance is not to be expected in either official Mormon or avowedly anti-Mormon literature. Neither has any responsibility to present both sides. The church has no responsibility to be objective and unbiased. The church has no responsibility to teach both sides. The church has no responsibility to give people the full context, to give people all the information that would be needed to make an informed decision. Right. And this time, by the way, I think the words speak for themselves. Uh, first off, I want to know, how was my impression when you compare it with Memorex? It wasn't too bad. Uh, you're do you did better than Streeter, who we'll show in a little bit. He he does a little Elder Oaks. We'll show Thank a little you. bit of that. In your face, um, Streeter. But I just wanted to comment that the first thing we were reading was more of an impromptu response to a question. And you could tell in the way that it was um, articulated. This that you just played was not impromptu. This was written by Elder Oaks to give as a speech to the CES Symposium on the Doctrine and Covenants in Church History, August 16th, 1985. He said exactly what he meant to say and how he meant to say it. Yeah, notice here at the beginning, I'm gonna play a little part of it first. Number five, balance. Balance is not to be expected in either official Mormon or avowedly anti-Mormon literature. And, and there's a part, I think, before this, or at least somehow it makes its way into the statement, but he says balance is telling both sides. And yes. then he has this quote where he says, it's not the mission of official church literature or avowedly anti-Mormon literature. Neither has any responsibility to present both sides. What he's essentially admitting is the church is not balanced. And what means fair, right? Right. And it's saying, we don't have the responsibility to tell you both sides of the story. And by the way, he kind of lets this slip because that's not what he's talking about. You know how sometimes when you have a certain opinion that you don't want to say, and you wouldn't say it if you were talking about that subject. But sometimes when you're talking about some ancillary subject, you accidentally let it slip what yeah. it is that you really believe. Because yeah. in the context, of course, this is in the Mark Hoffman debacle. Criterion the, of embarrassment, sort of. Uh, 
Yes, I, I, I guess. Yeah, but, in a sort of way, you're talking about one thing, but you accidentally show your cards on the other side of the coin. Right, right. And sometimes that's sort of a Freudian slip. But what's going on here is uh, the, the media is just lambasting the church over Mar Mark Hoffman. And whether rightfully or not rightfully, I think a lot of it was rightfully, he's responding to them in this talk. And what he is doing is he's talking about the media. He's not talking about the church. And he's not talking about the anti-Mormons. He's talking about the media. And what he's saying is that the media has the responsibility to be balanced and to tell both sides of the story. And what he's impugning the media for is that they're only telling one side of the story. And the one side of the story that the media is telling is making the church look pretty bad at this point. So while he's talking about the media having the responsibility to, do, to be balanced and tell both sides of the story, now... He lets it slip and contrasts it with his responsibility, which is not to tell both sides of the story. But he thinks it's fair. You see, he thinks that's fair because he's going to allow the same latitude to the anti-Mormons, that they don't have a responsibility to tell both sides of the story either. This is phenomenal. Can you imagine a leader of the church talking about anti-Mormons and saying they don't have responsibility to tell to tell both sides of the story. The only reason he's willing to give that latitude to the anti-Mormons is because he's claiming it for himself now. And in the process, he's revealing the fact that the church does believe and act upon the belief that they don't have the responsibility to tell both sides of the story. They have the responsibility to tell the side of the story that benefits the church and makes it look good. And the side that doesn't make the church look good, they have no responsibility to talk about and tell the members about. By the way, I propose from this moment forward, the church must refer to us as the anti-Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Sainters. That's what we need <laughs> They must Avowedly. use the whole name of the church in, in calling us the opposite side of the coin, because otherwise it's another victory for Satan. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's a mouthful, huh? So they won't do that, but then they want us to do it on the other side. Mm -hmm. mm, that's weird. All right. So there's that one. Uh, the next one we're going to move into is a uh, Ezra Taft Benson. We're going to go all the way back to 1976. Uh, Maven, if you've got that one. Bicentennial. And this is timestamp 4215. Yeah, it, it, notice, I mean, we've already got a couple of Elder Oaks, and we've got at least one more of him to go. Um, he's he's a large impetus for articulating for the church the loopholes needed moving forward to be able to justify their dishonesty. Yes, and it, makes, it reminds me that 95% of lawyers give the rest of us a bad name, and Elder Oaks is one of that 95%. And it honestly... Uh, it's, I'm ashamed that he is a member of the same profession that I am a member of. Yeah. This talk, um, do you happen to have the audio there, Maven? If not, no biggie. Yeah, you got it. Perfect. Today, we are almost engulfed by this tide of self-criticism, depreciation, and defamation of those who've served our country honorably and with distinction. A most recent victim of the tarnished brush is J. Edgar Hoover. I knew J. Edgar Hoover personally over many years. He was a God-fearing man and one of the most honorable and able men I have ever known in government service. By innuendo, lesser men whose own motives are questionable, 
have maligned his motives and good character. I know the philosophy behind this practice, to tell it as it is, as they say. All too often those who subscribe to this philosophy are not hampered by too many facts. When will we awake, awaken to the fact that the defamation of our dead heroes only serves to undermine faith in the principles for which they stood and the institutions which they established? Some have termed this practice as, quote, historical realism, unquote, or moderately called it, or call it debunking. I call it slander and defamation. And I repeat that those who are guilty of it in their writing or teaching will answer to a higher tribunal. Damn. Look at that. I mean, he essentially says anybody who takes church history and attempts to uh, give both sides of the story, essentially, that that what they're doing is actually defamation and slander, which isn't really the true use of those words, right? Like defamation and slander means to um, tell things about people that aren't true. But what he's saying is when you tell the sh the darker sides of people's true history, specifically, he's talking about politics here, but if you look at the talk at large, it's clear that he's using that as an example to talk about how we discuss the uh, the dark spots of Mormonism. And it seems strange that he uses these words of defamation and slander in a way that really is the opposite of defamation and slander, just because he doesn't like what they're saying true about uh, historical people. And yes, and he's he's very shy on facts. In other words, he wants to impugn the motivations of the people who are sharing this information, but he doesn't want to say, oh, by the way, their motivations have nothing to do with whether what they're saying is correct. When yeah. That's an ad hominem. Yeah, but um, I'm just going to say this. Yeah, what? Can you put that back up there again, Maven? I have this clever quip I want to throw in here, and we'll see how clever it is. That last page of what he said. He said some call it. Yes, here we go. Oh, we're almost there. I can feel it coming. Do do. How about do 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 And just for the audience, we're we're giving her a hard time, but we don't really mean it. She's got like I see on the bottom of my screen. There's like five things to keep going, and each of those five things has several things. Yeah, I'm sorry. What is it that we're wanting? I thought that's perfect. What's up there? Yep, you got it. Okay. Say what is wanted. Missed opportunity. <laughs> okay, so here, I hope that this is worth it because this is a long way around for this punchline. I call it, I call, he says, I call it slander and defamation. And then I throw in there, but none dare call it treason. Mm. Little virtue humor. Look at that. To tell it as it is. And then all too often, those who subscribe to this philosophy are not hampered by too many facts. When will we awaken to the fact that the defamation of our dead heroes only serves to undermine faith in the principles for which they stood? Uh, and then he goes down, he says, some have termed this practice as historical realism, laying out all the facts, or yes. moderately call it debunking. I call it slander and defamation. That's, that's such a, that's just bullshit, right? <laughs> well, yes, because slander and defamation, by the way. Or the opposite. If it's true, okay, it's not slander. Yeah. Truth is a, de is a defense, an absolute defense to an, a charge of slander. Yeah. If it's true, it can't be slander. No. 
And he admits that it's historical realism uh, to tell it as it is uh, too many facts. I mean, he's admitting that it's truth. Yes. He just doesn't like what's being he said. Just doesn't like, he just doesn't like it. He did pretty good there for a guy with Alzheimer's. You know what I mean? He was, he was up there and in 1976, it might've been a little early. I guess it was probably 1990 when he really came down hard with that. But um, he, he, you know, this guy doing all this political conservatism, calling the civil rights movement, communism, he's, he just seemed to always be on the wrong side of things. And yet he, you know, led this church for about a half a decade, um, as its prophet, seer and revelator. Yes. And by the way, I lived through this and the whole thing was that lots of people knew his history. He becomes the president of the church, I believe in 1985 upon the demise of president Kimball. And there was a great deal of discussion. Uh, in news outlets and by pundits as to what the heck he's going to do when he becomes president of the church. And now he's got the control and the authority that he hasn't had before. So now he's going to ramrod his uh, Bircherism into Mormonism and make everybody uh, adopted who's a member of the church. And of course, what happened was not that. All of wow. a sudden, he, he softened, at least in his public statements, and he started focusing on uh, the Book of Mormon primarily. And I think the issue of pride, and those are the main things that he talked about. But uh, when he became president, the fears that a lot of people had as to what he would do were unrealized. Yeah, and maybe to some extent his health probably played a part in that as well. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, Steve and Benson, his nephew, uh, or grandson maybe, grandson I think, talked about how uh, Benson was completely out of it, kind of like Monson was at the end. And that the church would prop him up for photo ops and other things. But he really was kind of out of touch at that point because of dementia. Do you remember the communist potato peelings remark he made? Mm -mm. Okay, because you're not going to find it on the church website. But this was in the huh. um, the latter part of the 80s. He'd become president. Huh. What? <laughs> just, you know, here we are talking about how they hide things. And we're just talking about another thing they hide. So well, maybe continue. maybe you can find it. Maybe I just haven't looked in the right place. But the thing was, it was in priesthood session. I was present. I was watching it as it happened. And he's telling a story about after World War II, when he went over to Europe to try and help out uh, the, the people who were so destitute and the saints who were so um, uh, hungry. And of course, it was war torn. And what he said was that uh, they didn't even have bread for the sacrament. All they had to use for the sacrament were communist potato peelings and they were grateful for them and it was at that point where he was sort of ad-libbing yeah this wasn't actually on the teleprompter excuse me and I remember that Thomas S. Monson one of his counselors and Gordon B. Hinckley another of his counselors approached him simultaneously on both sides and they very gently but firmly escorted him away from the microphone and back to his seat hmm there you go. I was just trying to look it up. It's a, it's a talk, Prepare for the Days of Tribulation, 1980. And uh, you can watch it. I'm going to have to watch this after we get done tonight, because if I do a control search for communist. And I will tell you, that's not the one that I saw because I was on my mission in Japan at the time, and he was not the president of the church. But it may be talking about the same story about going gotcha. over to war-torn Europe after World War II was over. Okay, I'll just have to, I'm going to put put this in right now. I'm going to put communist, and I'll potato look up peelings. after the show is over. Look up those communist potato peelings. They're yummy. Communist potato peelings, huh? Okay, well, there's that one. And so you've got President Benson flat out telling us that the truth is defamation and slander when it happens within uh, 
politics and religion. Um, cause the talk again, if you go back and read the entire talk, he's talking about how to, how to articulate church history and what the critics do versus how the church handles it. All right. The next one, uh, we should have a, uh, two pages from a book, Solemn Covenant. Uh, if you've got that one, Maven, and we'll put that up cause that one will be, we'll use it for the next two sources here. So on page 372, this is the book Solemn Covenant, and it had to do with some of the history around polygamy. I reached out to Dan Vogel, who didn't have the book, I don't think. Um, you didn't have it. Jonathan Streeter didn't have it. Uh, it ended up being two people online and on Facebook. I put it on Facebook. I made the request, and two folks there sent me images of the book. And so thank you to both of you. Um, this is what we've got here. And so page 372, I don't have it where exactly it's at, but you can kind of maybe see there and try to find it. But here's what it says. Um, and this is also with me prefacing it with some, um, some context. Deception as a management tool was frequently discussed in the leading councils of the church. So leaders were counseled not to record notes from meetings in their personal diaries. Joseph, President Joseph F. Smith was afraid that someone might read the diaries of George Q. Cannon and Abraham H. Cannon and use the information against the church. And you can bet your ass it has to do with polygamous marriages being done after the 1890 manifesto, right? It sounds um, like they were a couple of loose cannons. Yeah, they were a couple of loose cannons. Um, to this day, the church leaders refuse to allow researchers to examine the unabridged, uncensored diary of George Q. Cannon because of damaging evidence proving that the church leaders did engage in institutionalized systemic deceit. And that's page 372 of that book. And then page 373, Matthias F. Cowley stated, um, and by the way, I have links to the original sources of this book. This is the pages you're looking at. I had some other places that mentioned it, but we finally tracked down the book, uh, which you're seeing on the screen right now. In a hearing before the Quorum of the Twelve in 1911, <clears throat> that he had been chastised for asking for permission to predate 1890 plural marriages to make them appear to have occurred before the manifesto. Wait a second. What are you talking about there? What, what did you say, Bill? Yeah. Matthias F. Cowley asked the Quorum of the Twelve in 1911 if he could go back into the historical records and predate the 1890 and post-1890 post-manifesto polygamous marriages and backdate them prior to 1890. Why would he want to do such a thing? Because in 1890, Wilford Woodruff claimed the church ended polygamy in order to get in line with the government's requirements. But in fact, they were actually not doing that. They were continuing underground to perform polygamous marriages, even past the 1904 second manifesto and probably they don't really end until about the 1911 trial of John W. Taylor and uh, Matthias Cowley. So Matthias Cowley is doing 1984 Winston Smith stuff before George Orwell has even written the book. Or before Ronald Pullman's talk was readapted. Right? <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I just That is so delicious that I just wanted you to expatiate a little bit upon no, no what problem. was going on there. Yes. So to make them appear as if they occurred before the manifesto, he said he was trying to follow, quote, 
the training I have had from those over me. That's why I said earlier, we don't know what kind of training they get, but you can bet your ass that when you were called into a member as a member of the quorum of the 12, and maybe even earlier in the, in the higher parts of the 70, but you are trained what you can say and what you can't. And Cowley, at least in this moment, admits that he was trained on how to handle such things. So he says, training I have had from those over me, um, which was to act with duplicity without asking for permission in order to preserve, by the way, it's, let me say it again, quote, training I have had from those over me, unquote, which was to act with duplicity without asking for permission in order to preserve the image of plausible deniability for the church hierarchy. Plausible deniability is an important tool used by current church leaders. Ironically, after claiming that he had been taught to lie by previous leaders, Matthias F. Cowley also claimed, quote, I am not dishonest and not a liar and have always been true to the work and to the brethren. We, and there's an ellipses there. We have always been taught that when the brethren were in a tight place, that it would not be amiss to lie to help them out, unquote. So that's Matthias Cowley saying that. He's admitting that they have been trained when necessary to lie. Wow. Well, if you're admitting that you're a liar, are you being honest? You are in that moment, aren't you? So I, I guess I can understand why he's saying that he is honest. He's an honest liar. He's not He's not a liar because he's admitting he lies. Yeah. Except in the moment where he lied, you wouldn't have known he lied. Exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. That takes care of those ones. The next one is a famous one. We've got a little video footage we can put up there. This is also Elder Oaks. This is Elder Oaks, I think, the third time. <laughs> Has this man been disbarred yet? It's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. That's like the Godmakers. Even I get a Godmaker's vibe off of that, but it's really him. It's really he, I should say. Sorry, Mom. It is really he. It's really Elder Oaks really saying those words. It is. It is wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. In other words, even if you have the truth to say, if it is going to be put a negative uh, connotation on what that leader said or did, then you're better off keeping your mouth shut and not saying anything. It's the old adage, right? If you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. Right. Or as Mae West said, if you can't say anything nice, come and sit by me. <laughs> but but really, uh, the whole rationale for it, which is uh, talked about by Elder Oaks, and he's actually quoting from someone before him, and I can't remember who it was, but it's many decades before. This isn't something that started with Elder Oaks. He's just uh, most famous for it. He says the reason why is because if you criticize a leader of the church, you're going to be hurting the church. You're going to be hurting their ability to perform their job as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So the whole thing is this. The church is the most important thing. The image of the church is the most important thing. And therefore, the image of the leaders is the most important thing. And we want them to be able to do their jobs the most effectively possible, which means getting people to join the church and keeping people from leaving the church. And having people and baptize their kids. Yes. And that is why you are not supposed, and it's wrong, not just not supposed, it's wrong. It's a moral uh, problem if you speak the truth about a leader of the church when that truth is unfavorable. Yes. 
Um, so there's that one. And now we can go to President Boyd K. Packer. And this is on the bearing of testimonies and how you get a testimony. Do we have that one, Maven? Dan Vogel says that RFM magicians are the no only way. honest liars. I and did have it, but maybe I lost it. Boyd K. Packer. Yeah, it'll be in the outline with the hyperlink too, if we want to do it that way. Okay, sorry. Once no, no, no sweat. Take your time. And we have such an intelligent audience that I think a lot of them are already anticipating. They know what it is. I'm not yeah. sure Donald knows. Donald may be the one who's surprised in the audience if he's still with us when he's going to learn about how it is that Boy K. Packer says that we get a testimony. And shockingly, he doesn't say we get it by reading the Book of Mormon and praying about it. No. And fasting. No, we get it through the illusory truth effect. Ah, <laughs> oh, goodness. If you say it enough then you become to believe it. Yeah. And, and when you come to believe it, after saying it enough, that's the definition of a testimony. All right. So it's not unusual to have a missionary say, how can I bear testimony until I get one? How can I testify that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ, that the gospel is true? If I do not have such a testimony, would that not be dishonest? Answer, yes. <laughs> Easy. Yes. Obviously. Don't say the obvious answer. Until you have one. Yes. Oh, if I could teach you this one principle, a testimony is found in the bearing of it. Somewhere in your quest for spiritual knowledge, there is that leap of faith. Now, the, the previous believer in me somewhat can relate to like step into the step into the darkness, right? Step, take that one step out there beyond what you know, and, and just let's see what happens and see if faith and testimony can be gained. But let's pause for a moment. I want to place the viewer and RFM, I'll put you in the predicament to answer for it. I want to place the viewer in the shoes of the person who's having a testimony bared to them, but for which the other person really doesn't have a testimony. What is going on on your side of things when you hear a missionary tell you he knows the church is true, but he actually doesn't? Well, it is an interesting thing because the Holy Ghost is supposed to bear witness to the truth. So is the Holy Ghost going to bear witness to the truth of what the missionary says, even though the missionary himself does not believe it? Yeah. Is the investigator being lied to? Yes. Or is he? Or are we just parroting the words? No, no, no. What, I mean is, what I mean is when the missionary says, I know, no. is, he, is the investigator being lied to? Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So here is President Packer telling missionaries to lie to investigators. Well, I guess uh, he taught that one principle. Yeah, if only, oh, if I could teach you this one principle, lie to your investigator. Tell them you have a testimony when you don't. And he frames it as though um, the missionary will gain a testimony by practicing the illusory truth effect, which in fact does work, which is why it's called the illusory truth effect. But what he's not saying is the other side of the coin, which is go ahead and lie to the investigator. Yeah, the idea is if you lie often enough, then you will come to believe your lie is true. We have always been at war with East Asia. <laughs> oh my gosh. By the way, on my mission, and uh, a lot of people probably have a similar experience. On my mission, we had a missionary who was having a lot of trouble. He ended up going home early. 
in spite of the best efforts of those around. He was in my 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 ward when I was a district. My ward. I didn't have a ward. I had a branch uh, when I was a uh, district leader. My district. Okay, missionary lingo. It's been a while. Sorry. But anyway, uh, he was from Southern California. I don't remember his name. It's not important, but he actually had a moral dilemma that he did not know. He did not have a testimony and he insisted on not saying that I know in Japanese. Of course, he would not say that because he didn't know. He actually had integrity. It was a remarkable thing. It was also a huge pain in the ass because all he had to do is follow the freaking discussion, which was written for him to memorize and say, which means I know at the end of the sentence, instead of which is I believe. And he kept saying, I believe. And it was driving everybody bonkers. Can't you just say, I know? No, he wouldn't. He would only say, I believe. And it was like, for us other missionaries, it was sort of like, well, it wasn't the end of the world, but it was a real problem that he wouldn't say, I know. So what ended up happening is that the person with the integrity in the group, I'm not saying that I didn't have integrity because I I believed I did know, okay? But he's certainly exercising his integrity. And that became a problem that had to be fixed. Yeah. And notice too, that the missionary curriculum, the, the way you're supposed to present the lessons to the investigator does not take into account whether you know or not they automatically go, whether you do or not, these are the words you're going to say, and you are to say that you know. Yes. Yeah. It it seems like we're taught to be dishonest from the very beginning in Mormonism, which then reiterates the famous quote by you, Mormonism makes liars of us all. <laughs> is that all on right. the back of that t-shirt yet? Uh, yeah, I think there is supposed to be a t-shirt out there. We have to go check the gift shop, by the way, go to any of Mormon discussions, podcast under the umbrella, click on the gift shop and you'll go to see, uh, the merchandise t-shirts and other things with quotes from the show and images of RFM's logo and other things. So if you want that kind of stuff, uh, we get a pretty good portion of that. Thanks to xmoshirts.com. I did want to bring up that there's a movement afoot on the backyard professor t-shirts to have on the back. The words, yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's killing it, by the way. He puts out these things usually on Sundays, I believe. And he's yes, getting quite Sundays. a bit of participation. I will affirm that. I know yeah. it is on Sundays. I'm bearing my testimony to you. You know it. It's, it's good on stuff. Sundays. It starts at six o'clock mountain time. There we go. Every Sunday. All right. The very last one we'll do. And uh, this one, guess who this one is? Um, do I get a hint? No, no, no hints. No hints. No hints? Who is this? To lie is this, is it going to be Elder Oaks again? I, I don't know what this one is. What do you got here? Oh, this is, oh yes, yes. Oh, this please. is I'm the glad. church itself. I'm this glad. This is the, the manual. I'm glad because I wanted to do this and I forgot about this. There you go. So when the church continually talks about it's okay to withhold things and that's a, Solid, you know, there's solid reasons to do so. Notice what the church actually teaches its members about honesty. This is chapter 31 of the Gospel Principles book. We can also intentionally deceive others by a gesture or a look, by silence, or by telling only part of the truth. Whenever we lead people in any way, whenever we lead people in any way to believe something that is not true. We are not being honest. Can you believe they actually put that in there? It is amazing, isn't it? 
<laughs> they are condemning themselves out of their own mouths, but they don't. It, I, this is hypocrisy 101. <laughs> Actually, it may be 201. Yeah, it could it be an advanced course by this point. What? It might, it might be gaslighting. <laughs> and they, they expect that the, the members are not going to catch them. I mean, it is designed to not be caught, but obviously there's one set of rules for members yeah. and one set of rules for the leaders. Yeah. So keep this quote on fresh on your mind as we go into the very last one. And the last one is also Elder Dallin H. Oaks. Ta-da! Hey, I got it. So let's go to, let's show the article first so that we can show that the article exists. And uh, it's really long. I mean, it took Streeter about 36 minutes or so to, to read the whole thing. So we're not going to read it all. Oh, this um, is the one that Jonathan and I did a, a couple episodes on a, a year or two ago. Yeah, was Elder this Oaks is not a liar. This is the address that he gave to, um, was it 19? I can't remember, but it was at a, like the 20th anniversary of uh, Reuben J. Clark Law School. Yes, where he, he gives uh, an absolute primer on how to lie. And actually, that's what it says. Gospel teachings. Can you get that up to there? I remember this. It's not gospel teachings on telling the truth. No, this lawyer is talking to a bunch of other lawyers who graduated from the law school. And if you can just go up to the top of that um, uh, that article, maybe the, the title itself is wonderful. Gospel, gospel teachings about lying. It's not about telling the truth. Gospel teachings about lying. And all of this article is essentially laying out when it is appropriate to lie. And he's saying basically that this is the gospel teachings about when it's okay to lie. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so this will also be in the show notes. If folks want to go read it, it is full of beautiful gems. We'll go over the main highlights here really quick, but let's go ahead and play some of the video. I think it's hilarious. Um, if you happen to have the outline nearby, Maven, this you may not have seen this in time, um, but in this section of the outline, the third link in that section is Streeter. Uh, doing his thing and i can actually okay here you go you got it Oop, sound so this this is an animated thing that jonathan did and he's supplying the voice but the words you're hearing are actually the words from the article which means these are the words that elder oaks actually said so it's an animation but it's an authentic recreation of what it was that he really said and with the way deep fakes are progressing they're not even going to need Ronald Pullman to get back up at the stand anymore. Like you can just make Ronald Pullman magically be up there and say whatever the hell you want him to say. Yeah. yeah. It's a brave new world. It is. Oh, we don't have any sound, Maven. You might have to share the screen, get off and put it back on and share the sound. Sorry about that, folks. And, and by the way, if anybody wants to hear uh, Jonathan Streeter and I discuss this this talk that um, Elder Oaks gave, I think we spent a number of hours talking about it because once again, we have to unpack a lot of things. And it is remarkable that he goes on and on and on and gives all these different categories of when it's okay to lie. Radio Free Mormon, episode 217, uh, Elder Oaks is not a liar. And I'll put it in the comments so people can go and... Uh, Go check that out after the show. I was, I was actually very proud of that title because yeah. it was designed to keep me out of hot water. Yeah, you saw somebody else getting a lot of hot water with Elder Holland, liar, liar, pants on fire. And oh my so, gosh. <laughs> and you're still in the church and I'm not. So I so I titled it Elder Oaks is not a liar while we're talking about all the ways that he says you can get away with lying. Yeah. All right, let's give it a shot. 
disclosure to the trust beneficiaries of all matters pertaining to the trust property. Many other examples could be given. In the matter of lying, an essential question is not whether we have a duty to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. We clearly have that duty. We must not lie. I know of no category of justified lies. The difficult question is whether we are morally responsible to tell the whole truth. When we have a duty to- Will you pause for a minute, Maven? So he's saying, what, what the real question is, is do we have an obligation to tell the whole truth? Now, can you put back up by chance the gospel principles? Do you have that handy? And while she's doing that, what, what he's saying there, maybe we can increase the volume too, so that uh, Maven can be doing both of these things at the same time, increasing yeah, yeah, the volume got, we, and bringing we're, up we're, the things. What he's, saying, he's trying to say that we're not justified in doing an affirmative, flat out, bald face kind of lie. But there's all these all these places where we're justified in not telling the whole truth. Yeah. So let me go into some of these. Here's things that he, these are points that he hits on. If you doubt that this is in there, my two cents is go read the article. Um, I can promise you they're in there. Was uh, this what you wanted or you wanted the, the article back? No, no I, I want that up there because I want oh. people to understand Elder Oaks is saying at what times do are we not obligated to tell the whole truth? And notice the last line in the gospel principles. Whenever we lead people in any way to believe something that is not true, we are not being honest. We can also intentionally deceive others by a gesture or a look, by silence, or by telling only part of the truth. Now, here's what Elder Oak says. Point number one, scriptural instructions establish that the obligation to tell the truth does not require one to tell everything he or she knows in all circumstances. Um, number two, it is not dishonest or a falsehood to fail to disclose the whole truth unless we have an affirmative duty to disclose. Man, that's, that is shady. Um, he says, it is simply incorrect to equate silence with lying. We must not lie, but we are free to tell less than we know when we have no duty to disclose. Now compare that to the Gospel Principles book. Um, one is not a liar when one remains silent in a circumstance in which there is no duty to disclose. If I don't have a duty to disclose, I don't have to tell you. Compare that with the Gospel Principles magazine, or, uh, article, uh, lesson. Uh, number three, therefore, we must determine whether we have an affirmative duty to disclose the truth. Now, again, he's talking to lawyers, but he also titled it Gospel Principles Around Lying. So it's not really easy to parse this out as just legal mumbo jumbo. This also seems to be gospel related since he's bringing scriptures into play. All right. And notice too, that most of the general authorities end up being lawyers. I'd be curious to know how many of them went to school at BYU and get this kind of instruction on a regular basis. Number three, therefore we must determine if we have an affirmative duty to disclose the truth. Number four, we must also determine whether we have an affirmative duty to not disclose the whole truth. Reason, he says reasons may uh, reasons that justify incomplete or partial disclosure, disclosure may include loyalty to those we love. And I get that. I feel my myself being tugged at when my kids are in trouble and I'm trying to protect them. I get it. I understand the feelings that go with it. But there also is a line. And um, he doesn't seem 
real apt to want to say there's a line and, and to talk about that line. And what he also says, when, and what happens when Joseph Smith is categorized as a one that is loved? Yeah. And you can get, you get to say whoever you love. I love the quorum of the 12. I love the first presidency. I love Joseph Smith. I love Brigham Young. And then, then all of a sudden you have a loophole, right? Right. You have an affirmative obligation to not disclose all the truth. He says, uh, another reason for not disclosing all the truth. Sometimes there are other reasons not named just other reasons. Number five. Additionally, there are many sacred things we do not discuss. Number six. Oh, and by the way, by the way, yeah, please notice that, uh, that what that means is as soon as you take anything that you don't want to talk about and label it as sacred, you have created your own loophole. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a Texas sharpshooter kind of, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, you can label it as long as you get the power to define what is sacred, then you get the power to label what you should not disclose. Number six, we are justified in withholding things from the world in order to preserve ourselves and safeguard the work which we are involved. We may even be commanded by God to do so, which also means we may not be commanded by God to do so, but still do it. And that was the last one. Um, so those six points, again, if you read this entire talk, Elder Oaks, within the umbrella of the gospel teachings, tells the students at BYU Law School how they can get away with lying. Yes, and he's insane. It's amazing. And if you take him literally, and by the way, like I said, Jonathan Streeter and I spent hours on it. I know we only have a brief period of time this evening. But if you look at those and apply them, you can justify not disclosing anything to the members. Right. Anything that you do could be put under any one of those umbrellas of cover. Yes. Yeah. Amen. All right. I'm going to put the thing up for the, for the calls. I'm going to try to get really quick into the call in or the logger. Uh, sorry, the call in studio. Um, Do you want more of the video? I can't make it louder. No, no, no. We don't need more of it. I thought it was just funny to see Streeter imitating Elder Oaks. And the talk is too long. And these sections are not all right next to each other. So it would have been really tough to do that anyway. So give me just a second and we're going to try to get here into calls. Uh, Any thoughts in general, RFM, on all that was, you know, we talked about tonight? It seems like once you understand the full scope of Mormonism, um, it becomes pretty demonstrable that the church lies a lot. And then tonight we basically gave you their justification for why they do it, or at least give them the room to do it. Yeah. And if I can talk to Donald personally, mano a mano here for a second, this isn't our fault. Please don't blame us for saying that the church is hiding things or that church leaders are lying. And lying is a strong word, but it's a technically correct word because that's how it's defined in the church's gospel principles manual. But let's just say deceiving the members, all right? It's not us who are saying it. It's the leaders who are saying it. And we're just pointing out that the leaders are telling you that they're going to hide things from you, that they're going to deceive you. And so please don't blame us for bringing up what the leaders have said. If you've got an issue, it shouldn't be with us. It should should be with the leaders that we've quoted. Yeah, it should be with the leaders that we quoted. You should take issue with the Gospel Principles book if you want to justify their lying, and we should remove that section of the Gospel Principles book because they want the members to believe a standard of lying different than the standard they practice. 
Yes, exactly. And this yeah. is one of the great disappointments to me as I began to realize as a, a, an active, believing, faithful Latter-day Saint was that the church leaders did not hew to the same standards that they uh, told us that we needed to hew to. In fact, there used to be the last uh, question in a Temple Recommend interview. Are you honest in all your dealings with your fellow men? That was a few years ago. But are you honest in all your dealings with your fellow men? And that's the last one. It's the catch-all. And it's the one that usually I always had to think about, you know, well, that could cover so much ground. But yeah, I think so. I really try hard. The disappointment comes when you find out that the leaders who wrote those questions that you have to answer correctly in order to get to the temple don't follow that at all. They should not be allowed to get in the temple by the standards that they themselves have set because they don't qualify to enter the temple. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't punish the people pointing it out. Hold the people accountable who don't live to the standards that they teach the rest of the church to live to. Um, all right. So uh, we've got a couple callers already. It is the victory for Satan segment of the show because you get to punch in Mormons on your phone. Uh, you can go to, so you can join Mormonism live there at the bottom. It tells you what the number is by calling 662 and then the numbers associated with the word Mormons or 662-667-666, my favorite number, with a seven there at the end. Good old lucky seven to finish it off. We've got Travis on the line. Travis, you are on Mormonism Live. How are you doing today? Hi, Bill. How nice are you? Talk to you? Good. And yeah. RFM. I was in American Fork last night. Um, thank you so much for coming. It's what fun. a coincidence. I was too, Travis. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I Maven, thank you for all you do too. Hey, She's guys, amazing. I just want to read a small counterpoint. Um, I was flipping this around in the, in the sense that nothing new under the sun. You know, could it be true that people believe despite being lied to? And we look at church leaders, they're actually in the business of manufacturing things to, for people to believe, almost like it's part of human nature to believe. And there's certainly no churches did that uh, a few hundred years ago. Yeah. They spoke in Latin. The books were sealed, right? I, just curious with time, evolution, maybe new technology. What do you think? We, we humans are getting better at this? Or? You're asking the million dollar question, it seems. If I understand you right, you're saying, look, it looks like they're lying all over the place, but maybe they still believe it. Uh, yeah, potentially. Or maybe this is just part of what humans sort of do. Uh, we look for things to, to latch on to yeah they recognize that to a degree as leaders and say you know we'll, we'll feed you because we know this is going to happen and in a sense it's logical but i'm just curious if you, if you get the same way do you think maybe we're getting better yeah i want to ask you do you think let me take the gospel um gospel topic essays do you think they are extremely they're carefully worded to the exponential degree oh yeah Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it's so not a criticism at all of what's covered tonight. I'm just, I see a lot of this happening over, over and over, yeah. you know? Yeah. What, what I'm so I, I wonder. Yeah. Go, 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 no, go ahead. Well, no, no, I, I'm just wondering if, if maybe there's something in us that is tuned to believe. And over time, we're starting to learn maybe with increases in awareness, better yeah. technology. Yeah. Uh, blockchain, you know, who knows? We, we have transparency. To make it a little bit easier to find out, but maybe we still want to believe things. Yeah, Travis, uh, I'm sorry. Are you asking whether 
the leaders of the church are doing better at telling the truth than they used to be, that they're improving? I'm sorry, I'm not quite understanding the question. No, 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 no. I'm saying I think it's despicable what they're doing in line, but I'm saying maybe it's expected, me. perhaps. Right. What was that last part, Travis? That, that, that's what I'm wondering. Just, just, just. Say that last. I, I think it's despicable, but I think it might be expected. I'm not entirely surprised it's still happening. I wonder if maybe it will continue to happen because we want to believe something. I don't like it. Just to make that clear. Yeah. Are you are you asking about the members' continued belief in spite of it, or are you ask are you saying that the leaders, while lying, probably still believe it? Um, I, I'm asking more about the members. From the members' perspective, I gotcha. think that the leaders will do what members allow them to. Maybe we're, we collectively, are helping them get away with some of these things because I, we have for hundreds of years, right? Humans want to believe something. That, that's the idea. Travis, I honestly think that that question is an excellent one, and it should be addressed to Donald. Except he seems to have left the building <laughs> because he he yeah. apparently is one of those who is going to insist on believing in spite of the fact that the leaders of the church are telling him that they're deceiving him and hiding information from him. And you're right. It's a remarkable psychological phenomenon that's going on here. But I think Donald is the one who might be the better one to have the answer. You're right. It definitely exists in the church as a phenomenon. And Donald is exhibit A. But the reason why I'm not exactly sure, yeah. but that, but the desire to continue to believe what you already have understood and concluded is true, is extremely strong in the human species. Yeah, beautiful. I agree. I totally agree. Yeah, what was you. it that? Um, uh, what was it? Oh, oh, thanks, Travis. I'm sorry. What was it that uh, Carl Sagan said? I mean, besides billions and billions of stars, he said that something about the um, that it. The, the thing that's harder to get a person yeah. to believe, he, he used a funny word. It wasn't hokum. Yeah. Uh, but the, the thing that um, somebody will remember. But, talk somebody out of a belief that they didn't rationally walk themselves into, something like that, right? That was a little bit different but similar. Uh, the one I'm thinking of is where he says the, the, the thing that's harder than to get someone to believe hokum is to stop believing hokum that they've already accepted. Yeah, I was trying to find it. Um, the quote? Just, yeah, I'm looking for it, but I don't see it. But I, I know what you're talking about. Hokum's the wrong word, but it's a funny word like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll say, too, I mean, take a guy like Dan Hardy. Um, I think you've seen enough of his activity online, participating yeah. in posts that I do. I like and, Dan and Hardy. I, yeah, so do I. It's to the point where Dan would agree with us on almost every issue. He'd say, look, the Book of Mormon's not historical. Yes, the Book of Abraham doesn't add up. Yes, these guys seem to be lying everywhere. Yes, this doesn't seem to be true. That doesn't seem to be true. And at the end of the day, he still shows up on Sunday. And in some magical way that he's figured out that the rest of the church hasn't, the church is still true. It's in, it's insanity. Yeah, he shows up on Sunday on those very tight and form-fitting white shirts of his. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Just does. making a little fun there, Dan. Don't there take it go. personal. You look really good. I'm serious. Yeah, better than better than me for sure. <laughs> you know, and I think there are when when Mormonism holds you up, when you are the cat's meow in your ward, when you're the leader of the church, when you're Terrell Givens writing books, when you're Patrick Mason teaching at a university, there is so much writing on you maintaining your testimony that. 
it really is no wonder that those people, the privileged, and again, I was one of them. I, you know, again, 17 years old as a convert. I'm 29 years old as a bishop of my ward. I'm, I'm the mover and shaker in, in that ward uh, among three or four or five families that are doing lots of the work. And it rewarded me to a point where it was fun and enjoyable. And I was going to believe no matter what. It wasn't until I really started to sense the dishonesty of local leaders. I had a, I had a member of a stake presidency who was, at, before that was our bishop, and he was just a POS. And uh, I could sit and tell an hour worth of stories about all the stuff he did that was not healthy and not not respectful or had integrity. He was a um, point of sale? Uh, no, not a point of sale. A oh, piece okay. of something. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then when I started to really sit down with like Wendy Montgomery and her son Jordan and their experiences with him being gay and trying to maintain their activity and testimony in the church. And it just couldn't hold together. And I started seeing the trauma it was giving to people long before I saw, saw my own trauma that was being handed to me. And uh, I finally just little by little started to shut off this thing that it needs to be true. But guys like Terrell Givens and Mason, they keep, they keep articulating at least publicly that they believe. And the reality is of all the people who should know, they should know, right? Yes. And by the way, Ethan Bliss found out that the word was not hokum. It was actually bamboozle. I knew hokum was wrong, but I couldn't remember bamboozle. And the quote, which he looked up and put up there in the comments from Carl Sagan, is this. One of the saddest lessons of history is this. If we've been bamboozled long enough, we tend to reject any evidence of the bamboozle. So, Donald, your assignment for next week is to memorize that and then recite it to us when you call in at the end of the show next week. And it, by the way, the rest of the quote, we're no longer interested in finding out the truth. The bamboozle has captured us. It's simply too painful to acknowledge, even to ourselves, that we've been taken. Once you give a charlatan power over you, you almost never give it back. Mm, wow. That's very powerful, very applicable. But Donald, you only have to memorize the first sentence. That'll be enough. <laughs> All right. Let's go on to uh, Sarah. Sarah, you're on Mormonism Live. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing great. Glad you're on the program. You're on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. What's on your mind tonight? Thank you. I just uh, really wanted to build on the statement that RFM has said, or you've quoted several times over the last several um, episodes of Mormonism makes a liar of us all. Um, so I'm a licensed professional counselor. Um, my husband just retired from the army. So I practice all over the country at this point. And some of the thoughts that came to mind as I listened to you all tonight is that, you know, one of the things that, that we learned in psychology 101 and human development 101 is that the best way to foster honesty is in, is to ensure that the speaker feels safe and being vulnerable. If, if the speaker doesn't feel like the truth is safe for them to speak out loud, then the risk for dishonesty goes up exponentially. And my experience in, in Mormonism, you know, 39 years in, in Mormonism, is that the members cannot be honest in the way that they proclaim they want to be because the church system rewards lying and and punishes the truth. And, and we see that, um, according to David Kessler, I don't know if you're familiar with David Kessler's work, he's written like the sixth stage of grief. 
he's a, a leading expert on counseling in grief and loss issues. And, and he stated, judgment demands punishment. And within the act of Mormon culture, you are judged for being honest. Um, and most of those things that, that we're asked to be honest about or that people want to be honest about are, are you know, normal humanity things. We're not talking about these huge lies. We're talking about normal humanity. And then we get judged, which means we get punished within the church for being human. You know, so simple example is the average eight-year-old active Mormon child being raised in an active Mormon family really safe in saying something along the lines of, I don't want to be baptized. Yeah. Yeah. And some of those eight-year-olds still believe in Santa Claus. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, how can you expect somebody to talk about difficult marital struggles if the response is going to be, you know, read your scriptures. I've heard so many horror stories in my, in my career of bishops giving just awful marital advice that perpetuates harm because the spirit told them to, and the couple can't, they don't, they're not able to go back to the bishop and say, Hey, your advice really sucked. It didn't work. It made things worse. What else do you have for me? Because he's the bishop. And so you get caught in that circle. The church is always right. The bishop, you know, spoke by the spirit. I can't go back and say that, you know, the inspired advice didn't work for me. Then they hit my door and I'm like, all right, we're going to ignore everything your bishop just said. Let's start over. Because they cannot go back and say that didn't work. Now what? Yeah. And I'm so glad that you're there, Sarah. And those were wonderful comments. But of course, the thought that comes to my mind is, what about all those people who never hit your door? Right. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. How many people are living in fear because they're struggling with something that is basic to our human anatomy or our human functioning, our cognitive development, you know, these normal things and, and they can't talk to anybody. So they live, you know, we, jump into Brene Brown's work of living in constant shame and fear of being found out. But what, what so many people, you know, again, in my clinic, so if I see one in clinic, there are thousands of people I don't see in clinic that are, are feeling ashamed because they are a human being with normal human thoughts, normal human experiences. I mean, it's awful. Yeah. And the church reads it. It's, it's demonstrated for us, it's preached, it, it's everywhere. It's so prolific that the membership gets caught in a place of it's not safe to be honest. If I'm honest, I will get punished, disfellowshipped, excommunicated, ridiculed, shamed, isolated, shunned. You, you, you yeah. can't expect somebody to be honest when they're going to be destroyed in their community for being honest. You are taught from the very beginning to pretend to be somebody you're not. Right. The truth of a testimony is found in the bearing of it. So if I get up and make some shit up from the pulpit and I'm a great storyteller, let me tell you right now, I'm a, I'm a good storyteller. So I can, I've told some doozies over the pulpit and I get, wow, Sarah, great testimony. That really moved me. I felt the spirit so strong. 
But if I get up there and I'm like, you know what, I'm really struggling with paying tithing. I don't really want to. And when I didn't, things worked out. I can't say that from the pulpit. I can't be honest about a normal human financial struggle without being judged. How can you think that? Like, we're talking about basic stuff. Not, we don't even need to get into the big stuff. Let's talk about the basic, everyday, normal human experience that members are not allowed to be authentic and genuine about yeah. without being judged and then punished by their church religious system. Be- belonging's not allowed, so fitting in is all we can do. Yep. Yeah. Love it. Amen. Thanks for the call. Keep on preaching. Where did you? Absolutely. Sarah, thank you so much. What a wonderful call. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Have a great night. And Bill, where did you come up with that saying that you just said? Man, you need to listen to the Almost Awakened podcast, my friend. Well, I do. I need to listen to a lot of things that I don't have time <laughs> I, to listen I, to, and I apologize. Yeah. <clears throat> I should be able to listen to a lot more podcasts as apparently no, I've given okay. up sleep. I, However, yeah. what would, say it again, please. And where does this come from? That was incredible. I had to think about it for like uh, a couple seconds before all of a yeah. sudden I understood what you were saying. Belonging's not allowed. Belonging is being accepted for who you really are. Right. And in the Mormon community, you compromise pieces and parts of yourself and you show up and pretend. So what I said was, because belonging's not allowed, fitting in is all you have. That's the only thing you're allowed to do is fit in. All you can do is pretend to be somebody you're not. And so <clears throat> when, when you look at uh, Terrell Givens, uh, Patrick Mason, again, those men have said things to me off the record that they sure as hell would not want the church to know they said on the record. We're all pretending in Mormonism. None of us none of us get to say what we really think or what we really are struggling with or what's really going on in our homes. We show up in our white shirts and our ties. We wear our nice fancy dresses. We smile at each other and we fool each other into thinking our lives are going perfectly. Meanwhile, it's a cluster F all across the ward. Right. Yeah. Now, by the way, this is what I've said for a number of years. It's similar, which is church is a place we go to on Sunday to pretend we're perfect. But what I want to underscore here is I think you just did something that I don't think you've ever done before. You have mentioned two names of people who have told you this. And what I recall before is you have made this comment, but you have specifically said, I'm not going to say the names of the people who told me this. Yeah, but I haven't told you what they said. And uh, I would simply say. Why don't you tell us the names again? Terrell Givens and Patrick Mason. Okay, so what did you say they told you? I, off the record, they say a whole lot more that the church wouldn't be comfortable with them saying on the record. And they know it because they, off the record, they're clear like, hey, this is my off the record thoughts. And here's my on the record thoughts. And so we're all compartmentalizing and pretending to be things we're not. If if either one of those guys wants to refute that and say that they didn't say anything in front of me, I would welcome that. And I won't tell you what they said because I don't feel like I've got the permission to do that. And they didn't ask these things to be confidential. Um, but yeah. So, I, and it's just not those two. I mean, Bushman, when he said the dominant narrative wasn't true, as soon as he got his hand slapped for that, he rearranges what he kind of, oh, I, well, I kind of meant this and Dan Peterson can clarify for me. And, and then when I said, why don't you come on and do a conversation? We'll record you talking about what you mean. He said, no, I'm, I'm done talking about it because somebody told him to keep his mouth shut. Like it's the way things work in Mormonism. You don't really get to stand up and say what you really think. Patrick Mason tells people not really what he thinks. Stephen Harper, 
doesn't really say what he thinks. Terrell Givens doesn't really say what he thinks. They, they're not brave enough to do that. And again, no offense. Like I wasn't brave enough 10 years ago to do it, right? You weren't brave enough 20 years ago to do it. But we're all inside here. Mark Ashurst McGee told me that, Bill, what I would say off the record is completely different than what I would say on the record. Um, the member of the church history department who showed up at Family Pond uh, about six months ago, seven months ago, said lots of things off the record that he wouldn't say on the record. It's the way it works. So all the members get to go along thinking all these guys are all believers and they all got it all figured out. And the reality is if you got them behind closed doors and hooked them up to a lie detector test and you asked the right questions, they would fail miserably if they held to those answers. Yeah. That is really interesting, isn't it, Bill, when you put it that way? Yeah. Even these scholars who, I mean, when I was a, a, a TBM apologist, I'm relying on them and their testimony and that they're telling me the truth about how they see things and how they view things. And maybe all of them actually aren't telling me the truth about how they see things. Yeah. Off the record, one of these voices, again, if I were to name these 10 names, you would know all of them. And Terrell Givens, Patrick Mason, Richard Bushman, those guys are in the mix of these names. The person I'm speaking to, which I won't name, said off the record, it's a thoroughly corrupt bureaucracy. On the record, they won't have anything to do with saying that. Um, it's, it's like we all know the church isn't true, but we just think it's better if everybody stays in and we all pretend. Wow. Bombshell. And the thought that occurs to me, if this is true for a certain number of LDS scholars, is it impossible to think that it might be true for a certain number of LDS leaders? Hmm. Like Elder Holland or yeah. Elder Oaks or Rusty Nelson, who tells deceptive stories about flights and hats and Zimbabwe, right? Like it's, it's all a game. Mozambique. Mozambique. <laughs> That's okay. Facts the matter. incident in Mozambique. Yeah. The facts matter. Let's be forthright. Let's not, you know, let's not not be forthright. Let's be forthright. Let's be honest. Yeah. So, you know, people get to withhold what they want to withhold. We all get to think our thoughts in our head. And at the end of the day, who knows what people really think, but I can tell you that the scholars of the church think something privately differently than they think publicly, at least how they articulate it. All right, last call, and I'm sorry we have kept you from getting to bed early, my friend, and you are exhausted. Let's get our last call in. Yeah, yeah. I don't expect I'm going to get to sleep until past midnight, so just go on as long as you. You should like. just take a sick day tomorrow. Yeah, I can't afford to. I'm sorry. Okay, well, let's. I got podcasts to listen to tonight. Make a donation and help <laughs> RFM get a nap. Yes. That donation is not going to help. Sorry, okay. <laughs> I need some pills. I need Ten. some heavy, heavy pills. Five-hour energies do work, so take one of those in the morning. Perfect. Thank you okay. for the recommendation. All right. Last call. We'll be quick. Uh, caller, you're on the air. Let's, but I'm, I'm gonna, just going to put a little pressure on you. Be as quick as you can. And uh, we appreciate you calling. You're on Mormonism Live. Hello? Yeah. Good day, Bill. Good day, RFM. Uh, hello. 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 Are you from Down Under? Hi. Bye. Mate, you are absolutely what? spot on. Okay. Cool. What uh, what are you thinking, okay, my friend? I'll make this quick. Yep. Uh, my question is, how do ward bishops reconcile their members who are in a faith crisis because they have woken up to the fact that they are being lied to? 
Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll answer that. I'll take, I'll drop the call here. Thanks for calling and we'll answer that. Okay. Excellent. See you. Thanks, Bill. Yep. Bye-bye. Thanks for calling. Uh, if I can go first only because I was a bishop. And hopefully you, if you understood the question, because yeah. I'm not sure how does a bishop handle members in faith crisis? Um, Boy, I, okay. every, every bishop's different, right? It's leader roulette. You don't know who you're getting. Some of them handle it. Well, some of them handle it piss poor. I had a member of my ward that when I spoke very vulnerably about the messy issues, he approached me after class and he said, Bishop, you seem to speak to these things in a way that indicates to me that you know the mess. And I said, yes, I do. Let's sit down and talk. He said, I don't believe it. I said, to be honest, I have parts of my head that don't believe it either. And my responsibility is to be have integrity. And I'm going to talk about these issues in a way that doesn't slam people or pull pull the legs of the table out from under them. But I want them to confront this stuff. And so I'm going to talk about it. And I would ask that you not speak in ways that also would pull the legs out from the, under the table. And so I tried to be as charitable as I could, honoring that he had a much more informed perspective than the rest of the members of the ward. But I also tried to adhere to my duty as the ecclesiastical leader of that ward and protect people from having to confront all of that at once, kind of like reading the CES letter. And would I do it that way again? No. But in that moment, that was the best I knew how to show up as a human being and be honest to everyone and also try to be a good bishop in an LDS ward. Well, I think it's a darn sight better than just telling him to read the Book of Mormon and pray and read general conference talks until oh, yeah. his doubts go away. Yeah, um, I don't remember what the years were, but it was right around the time that the gospel topic essays were starting to kind of come out. It was right when I was leaving that ward and coming to uh, to Utah. And kind of my last little effort in that ward was to assign people talks where the leaders at least hinted at some of these issues and try to get that conversation kind of going. Um, but again, I left and moved out here. And once I moved to Utah, nobody trusted me because I was the guy who was talking about complicated, messy things all the time. Yes, you were. And you were yeah. doing a great job, by the way. I was listening to your podcast at the time. I just discovered it. Very, very helpful to me, the things that you were talking about and trying to engage and deal with this messiness, which I, I know the messiness, but nobody will talk about the mm -hmm. messiness and no one will talk about trying no, to Almost no one knows it. Yeah. No one really knows it. And the ones that kind of think they know, they don't even have a clue of the depth of, of where these issues go. You know, they're still telling you that the reason that uh, uh, masonry and the endowment are similar is because the Masons had a corrupted form of the endowment ceremony that goes all the way back to Solomon's temple. And and so all that kind of nonsense gets said. Um, but anyway, tis life. If only it were true, it would be a great answer. If only it were true. If it were true, it would be true, but it's not. It would be a great answer. It would, but it's not. Yeah. Um, any last thoughts from you? No, uh, I always say no, and then I keep talking, okay? So that's one of the things about me. Uh, last thoughts for me. I think this has been an incredible episode tonight, Bill, and I want to really thank you. Uh, I know it's your, it's your night, but I have been so occupied. All I can say in my own defense is that I did read the outline before yeah. we actually went on the air tonight. Yeah. So I think you've done a, just a magnificent job, and I want to congratulate you for such a great episode. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome, and we'll end with this. This this idea 
that the church is hiding something, that, which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time, there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody 